Father in heaven, as we move from worshiping you, from professing our faith, to professing faith um, through baptism in the gospel, and through singing, Lord, we transition now to professing your faith through declaring your gospel, through preaching, through heralding, through announcing of a victory won, rather than instructions on how we can bring ourselves salvation. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in me and in this whole church together, that your word would be proclaimed, heralded faithfully, and that those whose ears it falls upon would receive it as the voice of their good shepherd who laid down his life for them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Lord's Day, we turn again to look at a big moment in the history of God's redemption of his people. We're looking actually, uh, as we go through the book of 1 Samuel, what we're doing is we're looking at how the Lord turns Israel from a nation, now turns her into a kingdom, and then gives them to a king. And also gives a king to them for the purpose of bringing them redemption. And these moments mark a turn, a development, a big step forward in God fulfilling his promises to bring redemption to sinners. And so there will never be a time again when Israel first became a kingdom under the reign of a human king. That will never happen first for the first time ever again. But the Lord records it in Scripture for her to be reminded of the fact that it did happen. There was a day when it happened. And also then records it in Scripture so that she will always be reminded of what that means for her. Whenever she reads it or whenever she hears it announced to her when she's assembled. And so this is very fitting for us today, isn't it? Because we have celebrated the gift of baptism given to our dear brothers and sisters, Stefan, Shelley, Kelsey, and Pablo. Now today was not the day when you became forgiven and redeemed. Today is not the day when you were rescued from your sin and stopped being a child of wrath and condemnation. That day happened some time ago. Today is not the day when you became a child of God. There was a day when that happened. And before that day, you were not his child, but you were his enemy. Today is not that day. Today, however, is the day when the Lord draws our attention to the day that he publicly marks it through baptism. Today's not the day when the Lord rescued you from the domain of darkness and qualified you for the kingdom of his beloved son, but it is the day when he publicly marks it visually and physically by the sign of baptism. And this is for your benefit, a marker that you used to be under the reign of sin and death, but you now belong to Christ. He is your king. And so the rest of your life, you will be reminded by the word of God of your salvation, but it'll also be something that the Lord, as you read scripture, he'll often remind you of the day you were baptized, reminding you that you are Jesus's and that he is your king. 
And so today, the passage which we'll read, it reminds Israel before us, it reminds us of what it means to belong to the Lord, what it means to be his, to be his people given to him by the Lord to King Jesus, to be, rene- to be redeemed by his anointed king. And so as we prepare to, to read this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 11, and I, I encourage you to turn there, I want us to recognize this first point as we read it, and I trust you will be able to see this. Through his anointed king, the Lord unifies and delivers his people from cruel kings. Through his anointed king, the Lord unifies and delivers from cruel kings. See, the Lord instructed Samuel to anoint Saul, who was the handsomest, tallest young man in the nation, a a man who came from great wealth. Saul had become the king, but he'd not yet done anything kingly. We heard already that his his kingship was for the purpose of God redeeming his people, but Saul hadn't done anything like that. Today we're going to look at how the Lord first brought redemption through the first king which he anointed for Israel. This is the first time that the Lord would redeem his people through an anointed king. First time. And we'll get to listen to this right now. So 1 Samuel 11. We're going to read the whole chapter. All right. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash... Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Jabesh of Saul, they reported the matters to the, in the ears of the people, and, or sorry, Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. 
Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said Saul shall reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The people of Jabesh-Gilead were so tyrannized, and they were so defeated and broken by the wickedness of Nahash, king of the Ammonites, that their only hope of reprieve from his cruelty was to give in to him and to actually make, them, make him their king. So they make this offer to him. They offer to make him a covenant that he would be their king and they his people. But he accepts with one condition. If you want me to be your king instead of your enemy, I will take the aiming eye out of each of your men's heads. The people of Gilead agree to the terms, but they ask only that he give them a week to find a redeemer. And if no redeemer is found in Israel, they will accept the cruel terms. They will give in. They will make a covenant and serve him as their king. Now, through this historical event, The Lord clearly shows his people that he doesn't drag them out of joy and honor and freedom and happiness. He doesn't conquer a good king to take them away from that king. It is a wicked king he rescues his people from. They they couldn't really make peace with Nahash. Giving up their struggle against Nahash wouldn't make him their friend. Sure, the battle would be over, but it wouldn't result in blessing. Now, throughout Israel's history, she was tempted over and over and over again to resent the fact that they had been drawn out from among the nations the way that a man draws water out from a well. Doesn't ask, just takes your mind. God grabbed them and made them his own possession, taking them from the dominion of the kingdoms of the world and setting them apart to serve him instead of Pharaoh, instead of Nahash, instead of Og, instead of the idols like Baal and Asherah and Molech. In fact, instead of serving their own wicked hearts, God had grabbed them and said, you're mine, you belong to me, you serve me. And they resented him for that fact. They imagined it would be better to belong to the kingdoms of the world. Better to be like them. Better to be free to serve their gods and their kings. Better to serve and follow their own hearts. For 400 years they were in Egypt. About half a millennium before the events of the passage we're reading today. And while they were in Egypt, they were slaves of Pharaoh. He beat them and killed them. He aborted their baby boys. And when that plan failed to kill them before they were born, he killed them after they were born. And the Lord snatched them out of the clutches of Pharaoh, and he brought them out of Egypt to be his own people. 
But soon afterward, they were pining for Egypt and thinking how good it was there and how cruel the Lord was for taking them out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's hands. And so in the first saving act that the Lord performs through a king, which he provides his people, he makes this abundantly clear. In giving his people to his anointed king, in making them a kingdom to give to an anointed king as his possession to save and redeem, he is saving them from cruelty, not from joy. So Stephen, Shelley, Pablo, Kelsey, and all my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is something that our own sinful hearts will continue to wrestle with. And this truth is a medicine and a weapon to help you in that struggle. We are not of the world. We do not belong to the world. And though we sometimes foolishly long to belong to the world, we think of all the things we gave up to belong to Christ. And we see the perks and freedoms through sin-stained glasses and think how sweet it would be to be free, to belong to the world. Not only that, you do not also even belong to yourself. You do not belong to yourself. But sometimes you might wonder if that would be better. You might think that the Lord was harming you and taking you away from yourself and your heart and giving you to Christ, but it is the thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Christ the good shepherd lays down his life to give you life. There is no greater freedom than to be freed from slavery to your own self and sin in your heart and the world and instead to belong to the Lord's Messiah, his anointed king. Saul was Israel's first anointed king, literally Messiah or Christ, and he would fail and be replaced. But God was teaching his people that the Lord's good intention in taking a people and giving them to his anointed king would be to unify them, to make them one, and to redeem them not just from wonderful things, but from a cruel master. Brothers and sisters, just like Jabesh Gilead could, could give up to Nahash. They could give up to Nahash. They could give up their struggle and battle against him, and they were tired of that battle, obviously. They could give up the battle against Nahash. But it would not be good to do so. It would be foolish. Especially if there was a redeemer to be found in Israel. Provided by the Lord. And there was. And so you too. You could give up your battle against sin and the slavery of your own hearts. You could give up your battle. And many do so because they're tired of repenting, tired of fighting, tired of humbling themselves and calling on the Lord to forgive them and free them. But it would be infinitely foolish to give in to this battle and embrace the reign of sin over you, especially if there was a redeemer to be found in Israel, whom the Lord provided. He has provided the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul is not the Messiah. Christ is. There is a redeemer to save you from tyranny, so do not give up in your resistance to that tyranny of sin's slavery. 
Notice also, I trust you saw this, that it's the Lord himself, not our own might, who rescues us from that tyranny. We see in verse 6, any good thing King Saul does for them. We see this over and over. Any good thing that the Lord does through Saul for his people, it is through the Lord. The Holy Spirit rushes on him to accomplish it. In verse 13, we see that it was the Lord who accomplished the victory. And so again, Kelsey, Pablo, Shelley, and Stephan, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Redeemer whom you have been given to as his possession so that he would save you, not from freedom and joy and honor, but from shame and cruelty. So do not be tempted to go back to the wicked king of sin and your own sinful heart. Do not be tempted to give up that fight, as tired as you are, but lean on the Redeemer provided by the Lord and fight in his strength and trust in his promises that it is not your battle, but the Lord's which he won for you on the cross. Which brings us to our second point, and that is this. God redeems his people who rejected his reign. And it wasn't the first time that Israel had needed redemption. This is kind of her thing. She's the people who need redemption. It wasn't the first time the Lord provided redemption for her. Even if though it was the first time he did this through an anointed king of his, it was his pattern. He redeemed a people who continually rejected his reign. The reign of the Lord her God. In fact, you're going to see, it was most often the reason that she needed to be redeemed by God, her king, is because she rejected his reign. Rain. Let's continue reading in chapter 12. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us, of, uh, defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. They said, he is witness. Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness. Who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out and the Lord to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies." that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel to, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. 
And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord God was your king. Throughout her history, the Lord had consistently provided redemptions to his people when they cried out to him. And Samuel reminds them of this. He goes through their history and takes a few key pieces. It's a continual cycle. It was the Lord who did this because he was their king. He was the redeemer. But Israel grew tired of this. And when Nahash oppressed them, rather than turning to the consistent and faithful and merciful and undeserved redemption of the Lord, which he so many times before had brought them, the sweet gift of being his people under his reign, they said, no, a king shall reign over us. We want another king to redeem us from Nahash. Though the Lord has redeemed us many other times, we don't want him to be the one to redeem us. We want him to redeem us through a king. Now, this highlighted the sad truth that it was Israel's own rejection of the reign of God that made them need redemption by God. That was their greatest and most enduring slavery. Israel's greatest and most enduring slavery was not to Pharaoh, was not to Nahash, not to Og, but to their own sinful hearts. But this also shows the grace of God. He doesn't redeem people who have not sinned against him. He doesn't redeem people because of their submission to his reign. He redeems people who are unworthy and undeserving out of sheer grace and a covenant sworn in love. So brothers and sisters, we rejoice that you have submitted to Christ. But do not let that be the grounds of your salvation. When your heart is exposed to you and the sin within becomes clear, do not think for a moment that that makes you someone who is not a candidate for the Lord to redeem. In fact, it means that you need his redemption. Do not remain in sin for any reason, especially not the foolish reason, that the Lord would not hear your cry for mercy because you are a sinner. The Lord redeems sinners who have rejected his reign. Brings us to our third point. The voice of the Lord is still king. The voice of the Lord is still king. Now this did mark a change in Israel's history and the Lord's reign over her and redemption over her. We've seen this. This is marking a change. Things will never be the same after this moment. But what did remain the same is that even though he had given her over to a king which he anointed, it was his voice, his word, was still king. Let's read verses 13 to 18 of chapter 12. 13 to 18. Samuel still talking. And now, behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the 
voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Samuel served in this moment as a stand-in for all the other prophets of Israel's history whom the Lord God spoke to Israel through. It is a good voice that the Lord reigns his people over. It is a good word that he reigns over his people. It's not like the voice of Nahash. Samuel, as a prophet, was the mouthpiece of God, and he did not take advantage over the people. We saw that already. He didn't take advantage of the people. God's word was not blinded by sin. The justice which comes through the reign of God through his word revives the soul, and it doesn't steal, it doesn't oppress people. It's not like the kings of the world whose reign is oppressed by their, or is affected by their own sin and deception of sin and and wickedness. The reign of the Lord God through his word does not oppress, but it's a good reign. It is the justice which comes from the Lord's own eyes. It is the good voice of the good shepherd who revives the soul and doesn't steal or oppress. And so the voice of God or the word of God or the scriptures has always been the scepter with which the Lord reigns over his people. By speaking his word over his people. He gave them prophets and Samuel was one of those prophets. And being a prophet wasn't something a man could choose. You wouldn't ask a A four-year-old boy, what would you like to be when you grow up? I might want to be a prophet. Well, let's follow that path. Nope. It wasn't something a man could try out. Just going to start talking, and maybe we'll see if something comes out from the Lord. It wasn't something you could get better at or practice. A man didn't think or wonder, maybe I'm a prophet. A man didn't learn to hear God's voice. In fact, Israel was never left to wonder Who was the prophet given to them by the Lord? They were never left to wonder if words spoken were the words of the Lord or not. God established his words. He he accompanied it with miracles when it was first delivered. The kind of miracles that didn't need faith to believe. Nobody needed in Israel to believe that day whether or not a thunderstorm had happened all day in the dry season. That was not something they had to believe. That they saw. The word attached to it is something they had to believe. The word of God always required faith, but the miracles attesting it, when it was first delivered, never did. Add to that the fact that a self-professed prophet, if he ever said something untrue and claimed it was from God, Israel was to immediately take him outside and kill him publicly. The Lord loves to reign over his people through his Word And the nickname he often used for his word or for scripture was his voice. This is my voice. 
Notice how Samuel says to the people in giving them a king, he says, I obeyed your voice. But then he says, let us not disobey the voice of the Lord, which is his scriptures. When it's said over and over in, in the Old Testament, when it's said that Israel didn't listen to God's voice, it wasn't saying she's punished for not knowing which thoughts in her mind were God talking. No, no. We see here, and look at verse 14, that the indication is that it is a synonym for the commandments of God, the word of God. This is a synonym. So Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, he now speaks on behalf of God, and he gives promises, and he gives commands. And the Lord established his word with a miracle, an all-day thunderstorm in the middle of dry season, promised by Samuel. Now, if Samuel was wrong about this, he would be killed publicly. The Lord knows our hearts and that we would struggle to trust his word to obey it. And so he made it very simple for Israel. The struggle would never be to know what the word of the Lord was. The struggle would be to trust and obey it, not to know what it was. So this is how he reigned his people. Not through thoughts or impressions or competing prophecies, but with a word from a prophet which he clearly established with miracles. He reigns his people by his word that they would walk by faith in him and in his word. They would obey the commands that he actually made. They were to be comforted by the comforts that actually came from his mouth. They were to trust not everything that they heard about him, but they were to trust what his word said about him. And that's what it looked like to belong to him as their king. The scepter with which he reigns his people is his word. Whether Saul was king or not, before Saul and now after Saul, Samuel's saying, this, this remains the same. The word of God is how the Lord reigns over you. So brothers and sisters, do not trust your heart. Do not trust your ideas about the Lord. Do not trust your pastor's ideas about the Lord. Do not trust other people, even Christians' ideas about the Lord, no matter how good they are. Embrace his reign by embracing his word. Do not try to discern his voice in your thoughts. That's a pagan idea. It has come to Christianity from pagan religions, not from the Bible. I will tell you this very clearly from Scripture. The pattern is this, that this only leads to being reigned by your heart or the hearts of other sinful men. To embrace the loving reign of the Lord your God is to be reigned by his word. Obey its commands. Be comforted by its comforts. Be warned by its warnings. Be corrected by its corrections. Trust its promises because these are the voice of God. And that's how his people are identified. Not by being people who are able to hear a voice in their head and call it God. No. But those people who hear the scripture, who recognize it as their king and shepherd, the voice of their good shepherd, and they follow it, those who tremble at the word of God, says Isaiah. Brings us to our fourth and last point, which is repent 
and throw yourself at the mercy of the Lord and his covenant to you and your king. Repent and throw yourself at the mercy of the Lord and his covenant to you and your king. Let's continue reading in verse 19, going through to verse 25. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king." Israel has now heard that they have rejected the reign of God by demanding a human king. They realize the gravity of what they've done. What should they do? Is there hope? And I want you to notice, and I hope you did, the jarring statements that seem out of line in verse 20. Look at this, in verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. And what would you expect to come after that? It's not that bad. You haven't really sinned. Samuel follows, do not be afraid with, you have done all this evil. You're not helping us, Samuel. Brothers and sisters, our comfort when we realize our sin cannot be that we have not sinned. It's not that our sin is not as bad as we've realized. No, our comfort is found while looking the truth of our sin right in the eye and realizing that it's not better than we think, but likely worse than we think. Our comfort is not found in that. It is found without denying our sin, though. Why could Israel be confident that the Lord would hear her cry for forgiveness? Is it because their sin was not that bad? Was it because at their heart, genuinely, what's truly to be said about her is she does, I mean, she does submit to the word and and reign of the Lord. No. It's because of the covenant of the Lord, which he undeservingly gave to her. And that's what's signified in verse 22, by, by verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. This is calling attention to the covenant of God which he made with Abraham. He has sworn to be their God and they his people. Yes, he will discipline them. And yes, just like the rest of humankind, they do deserve to be destroyed by God's wrath. But he made a promise. He swore a covenant with Abraham, their forefather. And that covenant tied Abraham's uh, blessing and his family's blessing to God's own name. He attaches his own name and reputation to the redemption of his people. And he would be brought to shame 
If this redemption fails, he would blaspheme his own name. He has tied his own name forever to his covenant people. We read in the book of Hebrews that when there was a time for God to swear about redemption, he swore by a name that there is no greater name to swear by. He swore by his own name. If this redemption doesn't happen, may I be rent asunder. May I, as the Lord, cease to exist. Oh, that could never happen. Israel's redemption, her surety of redemption, when she realized her sin and called out on the name of the Lord to be saved, she could be confident that he would hear her and redeem her because of his covenant which he had made with them and sworn by his own name. They will be redeemed not based on whether they deserve it, but their redemption will be based on whether God himself deserves it. Whether God is worthy to redeem you, not on whether you are worthy to redeem. But now, though, we have a new element added to this. Their hope is bound up in the covenant God makes with them and the king which God gives to them. The anointed king, or we could say also Christ and Messiah, which are just literal translations. And that's going to be a, key, a theme for Israel now. You will, they will hear... You and your king, you and your king, you and your king. They'll, they'll hear that over and over again. We see that in verse 5, in verse 14, verse 25, and the rest of the Old Testament. Saul's the first anointed king of the people. But the throne will be taken from his family before he could pass it on. And it will go instead to David. And it is to David that the Lord swears that it would be a son of David who the Lord will permanently and fully give his people to. And his people's hope of redemption would rest not in their own righteousness, but in the covenant that the Lord makes with them and their Messiah, who, thank God, was not permanently and fully Saul, but Jesus Christ, God's own son. And so now our hope of redemption rests not in our righteousness, but in the covenant which God makes with our King, Jesus. Notice also that Christ Jesus doesn't simply submit to the Word of God, but we learn in John chapter 1 that He is the Word of God. When Christ came to reign over the people of God, there's no tension anymore between being ruled by the King God provided or by the Word of God. Which one should we obey? They are the same person in Christ. Because Christ the King finally was the Word of God made flesh. Yes, yes, righteousness was demanded of us. And Christ stood in our place and substituted his own righteousness in place of ours. Yes, death and damnation was demanded if we broke that covenant. But Christ hung in our place as a substitute to take the damnation on the cross which we deserved, and then rose from the dead. Yes, the people of God were to be unified under the reign of the word of God. And Christ sent his spirit to write the law in our hearts and empower us to walk as his blood-bought children. Repent and throw yourself at the mercy of the Lord and his covenant to you and your king. 
So brothers and sisters, Kelsey, Shelly, Pablo, Sifan, your comfort, comfort will not be found in hearing that you were, after all, worthy of saving. That before you came to faith, you adequately submitted to Christ. Peace will not be found when you realize your sin, and then you convince yourself that it was not that bad. It wasn't that wicked. Brothers and sisters, do not lean on that. You do not need to trick yourself with that nonsense. Run from sin and throw yourself on the covenant promises which God has made to you and your Messiah, Jesus Christ. That Christ bore your sin to wash you clean, to clothe you with the royal robes of his own righteousness, that your sins have been forgiven and your debt paid. And the Lord will forgive and redeem you, not because you are worthy, but because the Lord is worthy and you are his. And he gave you to his son, not to belong to yourself or the world, but to belong to him as a possession and to save you, to have you. And when you sin and realize that you have, Throw yourself at the covenant promises of the Lord, which he has made to you and your Messiah. Which promises rest not on how worthy you are, but on how worthy he is, and how worthy the Christ is, which he gave you to. You were just baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He saved you. And he will keep you for his name's sake. Let's pray in the name of Christ. Father in heaven, we are grateful that our redemption, our forgiveness, you even hearing this prayer is not based on our name. It's not based on the sum total of our accomplishments, what we have earned, what we deserve, not our name and reputation, but Lord, we are grateful that you have attached our salvation to your own name. You have attached the, the ability to pray, not to our name, but to Christ's, and we are grateful. Lord, let us never be foolish enough to think that when you grabbed us out of the world for yourself, that you were robbing us of something, that you are keeping us from something good, Lord, but let us realize that it is from cruelty that you rescued us from, and Lord, a cruelty that we deserve. Lord, let us rejoice that the salvation that you have saved us with is not by our name, not by our commitment, but by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be moved to worship and obey you out of that knowledge. And I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.